Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah. I do have to say I'm on service now. It's gotten a little busy and being outside today is just not pleasant. It is a little yucky outside. I don't know what happened. And I was on a telehealth call earlier today and all of a sudden all I'm hearing is over the the the, the connection is a bunch of alarms going off and sirens going off and I'm like what the heck? I didn't know what was going on. Apparently, you can now get dust warnings in central Nebraska because of the wind. Did you know that? I did not. They came over your phone? Well, it wasn't my phone because I'm actually not in central Nebraska, but I was connected to a location in central Nebraska Ah. and I could hear their phones going off with a dust wind advisory or something. And I'd never, I don't know. I mean, we've had straight wind advisories this year. We've now had dust wind advisories. I don't know if if the weather is getting, they're just adding to new things. It used to just be like tornadoes and thunderstorms and snowstorms. And now we've got all kinds of other categories. I don't know. Blame it on global warming. Might as well, (laughs) or COVID. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I'll stop talking about the weather. What's going on today? (laughs) No worries. So today we are really excited. We have another kind of special episode. It's a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, Today we have Dr. Denise Bulling on from UNL. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bulling. Glad to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. So Dr. Bulling has a background in psychology and mental health support. So would you like to kind of let our listeners know what you're currently doing? Sure. Thank you, Sarah. So I am currently at the University of Nebraska Public Policy Center, and a lot of my work is related to behavioral health. Um, And it's uh, when you think policy, you don't necessarily think mental health. Uh, But in truth, there's a lot of policy related to mental health, substance use, et cetera. So I was a clinician for many years and, uh, and doing direct service is wonderful, but this is another way for me to give back to the profession by ensuring that what we know about uh, mental health, about substance use um, from the clinical world is uh, reflected in the uh, policy world, and that it's all connected to the evidence that we at the universities hope to give by uh, providing our research and, uh, and some of the, the work we do to try and um, test some of the, the theories and some of the things that uh, end up in policy. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's very cool. That is, that is. What is the Public Policy Center? What uh, exactly uh, kind of work does that uh, facility do? So the Public Policy Center is a uh, literally a system-wide center. So we have uh, work with uh, the Med Center, University of Nebraska Medical Center, University of Nebraska Omaha, Lincoln, and uh, UNK at Kearney. Um, we're administratively under the University of Nebraska Lincoln, 
that that's who that's who employs us, but we're a center-wide uh, or a university-wide center. What we do is we try to uh, work with policymakers, and that can be um, the people who make the rules in whatever field it, it is. It's, uh, there are always people that make the rules. We try to connect them with faculty who are doing research in the area they're concerned about. So they uh, have access to uh, best practices. And then we also connect with the people who are in the field that are usually the subject of the rules. So you make the rules that govern somebody or something. And a lot of what we do is um, combine sometimes evaluation, sometimes research, and sometimes we do a lot of uh, assist agencies with things like uh, public engagement. So uh, you can kind of think of us as the uh, extension service for the policy world. We do a lot of community outreach and engagement. Uh, so we're sitting in Lincoln, but we work all over the state and we have a footprint across the nation. So that's a little bit about what we do. It's uh, ppc.unl.edu if anybody's interested. Awesome. I will put that link in the show notes for everybody if they want to check it out. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah. great. How big is the team? Uh, we have about 30 or so researchers on staff. And uh, then we also have uh, grad students and undergrads that work with us and uh, affiliated faculty on all the campuses. Wow. So Very it's nice. a good size, good size. So what got you interested in doing what you do? Uh, my background is in mental health. Uh, so I'm, uh, my master's is in counseling psychology and my PhD is in human sciences with an emphasis on social science research. So I'm a licensed independent mental health practitioner and a certified threat manager. And a lot of my past life was doing direct clinical care and uh, working with people in particularly in emergency, um, experiencing mental health emergencies. Uh, I took that uh, to my current position where a lot of my work now is ensuring that um, we are uh, in the behavioral health world on the practitioner side and on the uh, policymaker side, uh, connecting with uh, the evidence and making sure that uh, we're able to translate that to all the different types of uh, populations that we have to deal with and work with in our fine state. Interesting. Yeah, very. Go ahead, Rick. Um, so, you know, I'm a, a medical provider and to me, you know, I, we have a harder time with mental health. Uh, you know, it just it, it, physical problems, I think, are easier to grasp and, and kind of approach, at least in my mind. And so I think some of our country and, and, and everything else has more struggles with mental health. Um, where do you think we're going as far as mental health uh, to try to help people at, at this time? You know, I think the brain is one of the last wild frontiers yeah, we have a lot more to learn about the brain and about all the different systems that impact our mood, our, um, our well-being, uh, the way we view things, the way we process things. And so it's really a, a, an interesting 
field right now because it is a blending of uh, what we know about physical health and <clears throat> what we're learning about good mental health. So we know, for example, that uh, medicines can impact us in positive and negative ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, there are a lot of things that you absolutely need to have medicine for in order to get better. And some of those uh, uh, are to treat mental health conditions. Uh, so mental health is physical health as, as well. Uh, we also know that there are things that you can do that influence your physical health that um, are more brain-based. So for example, we, we know that um, if you are practicing mindfulness during your day, uh, they, where you're a little more centered and a little, you know, you're combating stress, that you are actually probably impacting your physical health in a positive way. And how all that occurs is uh, the object of a lot of research right now. But we are seeing that and we know that it makes a difference when you are consciously trying to <clears throat> breathe and stay, you know, stay in your zone where you're um, not stress-free, but able to manage your stress, that that impacts your mental health and it impacts your physical health. So Rick, it's really a, uh, a, a big package. It's all put together that it's very difficult to separate the two. Unfortunately, a lot of the training has been quite separate. So you have, you get a smattering of um, psychiatric or mental health training as a physician or a nurse uh, or a, a, a physical health professional. Uh, and you get a smattering of uh, physical health uh, work as a mental health professional. But um, it's, it's really unfortunate that um, they're in, they are siloed in many cases. Uh, and, it, and I'm heartened to see that many of our um, physical uh, health centers are now combining with behavioral health to ensure that we address the whole person if there is something going on. Because you can't just go to a counselor if you have physical issues as well, you can't just go to a physician, expect to get well, if you have mental health issues that may need to the expertise of a counselor. So um, I'm heartened by uh, community-based um, clinics that are now springing up that integrate behavioral health and um, physical health. And I think the Med Center has been on the cutting edge of that uh, in the past. And there are many community-based clinics that are now following suit. So that's, that's a two thumbs up for me. Yeah, that's great. I mean, certainly, uh, I know it's just in general, it's one of those things that we're comfortable talking about diabetes or hypertension, but there's um, something that makes us uncomfortable talking about mental health. Um, and as provider, I mean, as a provider, it's not something that I feel like I'm very qualified to do. And like you said, it's always been siloed. And most of my training has been in the, the allopathic medical, something organic that you can see or touch or feel or, or some measure of it. Whereas this is not quite the same, but it's obviously just as important or even sometimes more important than some of the other stuff. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think that, um, the, the more we all work towards de-siloing things, the less stigma will be attached to mental health issues. You know, unfortunately, some people see mental health 
if you have a mental health issue as being a sign of weakness or a sign that, you know, you know, I should be able to pull myself up uh, and out of this funk, um, or I should be able to deal with it because I'm trained as a medical professional. And it isn't so because there are so many factors that um, combine to make us feel the way we do. Uh, it's important to recognize that it, it's, you know, mental health is, is not anybody's, if you have a mental health issue, it's not anybody's fault. It is uh, a health issue. And it, if you have a mental health issue, it will impact your physical health if you don't do something about it. Um, and there are a lot of things we can do to help each other for minor issues. There, you know, I think part of the, the larger uh, concern is that we want to make sure that people know that uh, mental health is health. And if you are uh, not healthy uh, psychologically, emotionally, that it will impact your physical health. Uh, and that it is okay. As a matter of fact, it's a sign of strength if you reach out for assistance. And mental health professionals, physical health professionals, we're all the very worst at reaching out for help because we're the helpers. And uh, we, we feel comfortable in the helper role, but being helped is sometimes uncomfortable for us. And, uh, and I think we have a, a, a ways to go yet where we need to uh, reassure each other that it is uh, something that is, uh, it's, it's modeling good health when we do reach out, if we need it. I totally agree with you. And I feel that on a personal level very much. <laughs> um, do you think that there are things that uh, healthcare providers can do to help destigmatize the, the way we look at mental, uh, mental health for Absolutely. their patients? Absolutely. So uh, for their patients and for each other, I'm going to kind of lump those two together. Um, one, of, one thing we can all do is talk about it. We can ask about it. We can um, ensure that we listen and we can ask some direct questions about people's mental health. For example, um, one of the ex extreme um, things that, that, that sometimes happen is that people may feel like uh, they want to die or kill themselves, suicide. By asking the question, do you sometimes think about suicide or killing yourself? Um, it's a scary thing to ask. But once you say that, if someone is having those thoughts, A, we have to recognize we're not putting the thought into their head. And B, by asking the question, you're giving them the opportunity to, uh, to actually talk about it. And if the answer is yes, uh, don't panic. It's, uh, it's okay. And it's probably stress relieving to be able to talk to somebody about it. And then we can get them help. On a less serious side, but equally as vexing, if somebody is uh, experiencing signs of depression or anxiety, uh, or just not, you know, not, uh, you know, high stress. Um, if we take the time to ask them about it, how are you feeling? What kind of thoughts are you having? How are you feeling, not just physically, but how are you feeling emotionally, psychologically? On a scale of one to 10, what kind of a day are you having? You know, those are questions that allow people then to start talking about how they're feeling. And um, the only way we, we are 
going to stop some of that, um, that stigma is to talk more openly about it. Yeah, I think one of the things that you said in there has kind of been in the news lately, maybe for a different issue, but is talking about things or asking questions doesn't put the idea into people's heads, right? They, they're probably, not maybe probably, but many of them are maybe thinking of this and just need that door open so that they can then talk about it, whatever that, whatever the issue is. Um, uh, you know, and I, I'm talking more about the, some of the the gender identity stuff that they're trying to get through now too, as well as it's it, just because you are not asking about it doesn't mean it's not there and it's not changing anybody's thoughts by asking a question, right? That is correct. That is correct. And, um, you know, by opening that door, you're allowing people to talk about it without uh, feeling like they are somehow, you know, somehow if I identify that way, or if I'm having those feelings that they're wrong or bad, you know, feelings, you know, how we feel and how we identify, those aren't wrong or bad. It's just maybe who we are or how we are experiencing things at the moment. And um, the, the, the question becomes then, um, what if anything is, um, uh, is bothering you or is there, uh, are there things that you want to change? Um, and some of those things are external to you and some of those things may be internal. Um, and, you know, I think for uh, health professionals to ask the question of the people that they're serving uh, will allow people the, the, you know, the space to share if they want to share. And sometimes they may not be ready and that's okay too. So if they, if they are feeling comfortable enough to share some of this stuff with a provider, at what point would you suggest um, offering them more help? Well, I think that there's uh, sometimes when people just talk about it, um, you can talk it through. And um, if you're feeling like they, they could use more help than, than you can professionally provide, um, I think it's always safe to say, gosh, you know, this is this is important to me. It's important enough to me that you um, feel better, uh, that I want to um, connect you with someone who can help you more than I can. And, uh, and then you can make a referral to a, a treatment source and it's up to them to take it or not. Um, and there may be times when, it, when people aren't quite ready uh, but you, you can at least have them start that conversation and offer resources. Um, sometimes, sometimes people are ready to take that step. If they've started talking with you, they're ready to take that step. And others, they may need a little time before they're ready to do so. Very good advice. So um, if we can talk about the last couple of years, uh, you know, obviously there's been a few things going on here recently with uh, the pandemic. And, uh, you know, a lot has been made all along about, uh, you know, healthcare workers and burnout and stress and everything else. But I think society in general, we're starting to see more and more reports come out that just people didn't handle this well mentally in general with uh, the fear and unknown, as well as the social isolation. Um, and it seems like teens have had a really hard time with that. And I think we probably know teens is kind of a time when socialization is, is, is super important. 
important. What kind of advice can you give to people with as far as the pandemic goes and how they can help each other out and, and uh, not have this social isolation and, and lead to depression and anxiety? Well, I think that there's a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a packed question, first of all, Rick. Um, yeah, I know it a is. Lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, and if there was a really super easy answer, I'd write a book and retire. Uh, but there is no single easy answer. And, uh, you know, this, is, this has taken a while to unfold. And for teens in particular, and children and youth, they lost a couple years of uh, socialization, they lost a couple of years of education that, you know, traditional education. And so there's a, um, there's a cost to that. And um, I, I think that what we're seeing now is a, a special attention by both the federal government and even some local systems of really wanting to make sure that there is a touch point in the schools for uh, mental health, doing the same thing that we just talked about, which is to be able to spot children who and youth who may be experiencing some difficulty and rapidly connecting them with resources that can help them. Um, so I believe a, a bill passed in our legislature recently that requires that schools have a point of contact for mental health in K-12 schools, that public schools, so that, that uh, everybody knows where that contact is and how to get connected if they need it. Um, they, you know, the, uh, the pandemic has stressed a lot of us and a lot of our systems, um, but we've also lived through it. And for some people walking through that fire makes them a shiny penny. Uh, it's not all bad. Some people have weathered it and come out stronger. So I don't wanna think that everyone who's gone through this experience is damaged. Because in some respects, some have gone through it and have come out um, stronger and more resilient. Um, others have ridden through this and come out with, uh, you know, little scars on the edges. There, they need they need a little extra help. Um, you mentioned burnout. A lot of our uh, a lot of people have been very stressed, uh, particularly healthcare workers. Uh, some people. Um, have even experienced what we call compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is where it's kind of uh, not just external. Burnout is when you're just so overworked, you get so much going on that you, you are stressed because of your environment and your the lack of resources and the too much to do. Compassion fatigue is more internal where you really have a hard time um, connecting with and empathizing with the people that you serve. And I think it's not just healthcare professionals, it's also education and uh, some of those folks who um, really have had um, a lot of external stress uh, in, their, in their positions. And um, those are things we're going to be coping with over the next few years. And, um, uh, and I think recognizing that it's, uh, if those things are, if you're experiencing high stress, external, externally caused or anxiety um, internally caused that it is does not mean you're broken it means that you've probably been through something you know very very extreme and that um, you may need a little shoring up in order to continue um, so so I think really with teens and with adults um, we have to recognize that it is very individual 
And the impact is really individual. It's, we can't lump everybody into the same bucket. And there are going to be some folks who need a little bit more assistance than others. And it's our job then to make sure that that assistance is readily available, non-siloed and um, uh, integrated with, uh, with our healthcare providers as well. So probably a roundabout answer for your very direct question. Yeah, no, it wasn't a very direct question. It was pretty broad. So I, I knew that it would be not one thing easily answered. I guess one more question to follow up on that. We're back, let's just say it's March 2020 now, and we're talking about doing these lockdowns and closing schools and all those kinds of things. Was this something that the mental health um, uh, providers throughout the the world were kind of thinking that these things could happen depending on the length of the lockdown and kids out of school and people out of work and those kinds of things? Well, you know, in the past, uh, we've had pockets of these experiences. For example, when SARS occurred in Canada and we've had, you know, the H H1N1 flu scares they never locked down to the extreme that we've we've gone through now but there has been some experience and some research in that area about the mental health impacts of those events and um, from previous disasters we also know that um, people who are impacted have a kind of a trajectory um, where you know at the very beginning uh, people are all fairly anxious and concerned um, they're trying to kind of circle the wagons and figure out what they need in order to weather the storm. And uh, as time rolls on, uh, people start uh, not being quite as compliant and uh, they get tired. They are um, kind of feeling disillusioned, <clears throat> wondering when it's going to end. And we've seen these cycles come and go through this pandemic. So what we know from the research, you know, was predictable. What we as a mental health community in uh, around the world, what we were not quite prepared for probably is <clears throat> how to continue delivering services um, uh, with this rapid pivot where we were no longer able to see people in person for a while. Uh, we had to rapidly make changes in all the rules to allow telehealth or, you know, the, that type of uh, service provision. And we had to make that available in places where the connectivity was not that great, uh, very rural and frontier areas um, and uh, other, other areas of the world which didn't have good connections. So we've learned a lot of lessons through this pandemic. Could we anticipate everything that was going to happen? I think we had a pretty good idea, but it was so extreme and so widespread that um, I know researchers are now, now um, gathering data and talking about what this all means. And I think within the next year or two, we're gonna see some interesting, um, interesting information coming out. So another thing that has been brought about by the pandemic, it seems, is there's been a lot of conflict in and around healthcare facilities. We have people with, you know, very differing points of view. Everyone is really stressed. Um, would you have some tips on maybe conflict management or conflict resolution for our providers if they happen to encounter that? 
Sure. One of the hallmarks of, uh, of you know, post-disaster is, uh, is anger. Um, people are angry. They're, they're angry at institutions for not, you know, for not bending the way they think they should bend. They're tired of the rules. And so when people come in, you know, in particular in healthcare facilities, if you're still masking or you have rules that are related to this, they, they, people may be so disillusioned and tired that you, you are going to be the representative of the institution. And it has nothing to do with you personally. So that's step one. Don't take it personal. It's about their anger towards the system or your maybe something that's going on in their own life. And you happen to be handy. So usually the first thing that I do is, one, is make sure that you take away the audience, offer to meet with them in a private place, not in front of a lot of people. Uh, so, they don't, so, they, so they don't lose face and they can back down and nobody has to see that. Uh, the sec, you know, after that, um, I usually encourage folks to, um, you know, reiterate what the rules are uh, and uh, give them some options uh, and listen to their concerns. So you listen to their concerns, give them the option. You can wear the mask uh, and go in and see that person, or you can stand outside their window and talk to them by phone. Um, but the third option is not that you're gonna go in there without a mask, okay? It's kind of like telling your child, you know, you, do you wanna take this medicine with juice or water, right? The option is not, you're not taking the medicine. You're gonna take the medicine, but you got a choice. You want it with juice or water. So you can either wear the mask and come in, or you can stand outside the window and, and we'll you know, let you talk to them that way. You know? and, and I'm making those options up, but you can think of the options that work in your facility. Um, the uh, final thing I'd say is that if somebody is so angry that it looks like they're going to become physical with you, you can leave and ask them to leave and get some help. You never place yourself in danger. If somebody is that upset, then, then you may need to get some help or you know, ask them to leave or you leave and get someone to come in and, and help you. Uh, but most of the time people just need to get it off their chest. They need to know what the choices are and they may you know, they've got to take a breath at some point when they're on a tirade. And when they do, you can give them the options that they need to consider. Always keep your voice tone, rate, and volume in control. And take your deep breaths. Make sure that you control your anxiety as uh, it will likely be going up if somebody is yelling at you. Mine does. If somebody's yelling at me, my anxiety is going sky high. And it's a trick to try and keep it down and appear as though I'm in control. So those are a few things to get you started if you're faced with someone who's very angry. That's great advice. Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a few of those, whether it be uh, uh, patients nowadays or even just discussing vaccines with somebody as, as politically charged as the environment has become, those can sometimes be difficult conversations, which you would think would be just an easy medical conversation about something that you really should just help them. Absolutely. And because these are emotion, emotion filled issues, 
uh, people have opinions about them when they may not have in the past. And uh, uh, I think the, the, the goal is often to listen to their point of view. Uh, you may not be able to change somebody's mind, uh, but you give them the information that you need, that they need to make their decision. And um, in the end, they will make the decision that's best for them, um, or at least that they want to make at that time. So um, our, I think we have to be real clear on, on how those emotion-laid, politically charged um, conversations may also um, impact somebody's uh, energy level. And um, we want to stay factual and uh, listen to their point of view. And in the end, they get to make the choice that they want, that they believe is best, best for them. Uh, and, you know, it's not always our role to convince somebody <laughs> to take another position. Uh, it's to present the facts and to allow them to make good choices. Empowering people really does, um, really does help. Empowering them, give them control um, in a very out of when they're in a very out of control situation. And by giving back some control, even as I mentioned, having a, um, the illusion of choice, you know, do you want to take a nap on the couch or do you want to take a nap in the bedroom? You're taking a nap. So the illusion of choice is there, however, and if I have some control over my life, then I'm going to feel a little bit better. And it does help my mental health when I'm in control of something, when everything else is out of control. That really makes a lot of sense. And I hope that some of our listeners can get some little pearls of wisdom out of this conversation. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to chat about, um, we really live in a time of social media and, you know, a lot of us spend a lot of time on it, scrolling through Facebook and Instagram and all of those things. Um, is there any data that shows a difference in mental health since social media has come along? There's a lot of information, a lot of research out there. And uh, I think the, you know, the, the most of the research that is um, concerning is related to teens, uh, primarily because social media shows you what you want to see. And um, uh, it's also what we know is that people post about things that are good. Uh, or things that are happening to them, you know, particularly in teens, and it looks like some people are living their best life when they may not. So it's putting out an image um, that no one can live up to. So for teens in particular, there is a, a probably a need to um, have a, a have a limited diet of social media and having some more. Uh, literacy related to social media um, for adults as well. Uh, adults need this social literacy or this literacy on social media as well. Because of the algorithms on social media, you are going to be fed information and posts that, that um, reflect the kinds of things that you're interested in or say you're interested in or the opinions that you hold. And so seldom will you see opinions that differ from yours. And it begins to appear as if everybody holds the same opinion as you do. And then you start uh, 
seeing things that may or may not be facts or real and um, learning to fact check some of these claims, learning you know, to be literate in uh, social media is, is gonna be really helpful to you. Now, whether that is going to happen <laughs> or not, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really difficult to say. I do know that with teens, there's more of a, a push and you know, many schools and librarians are working towards increasing the literacy, digital literacy, of teens, so they're able to fact check and they're able to see, you know, what they're, you know, understand what they're seeing and why they're seeing it. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a scary world. The social media world's a scary world, and I have um, a, a mother-in-law who is in her 90s, and uh, she doesn't get out much, but she does have a Facebook account. <laughs> and uh, so there are good things, interesting things. She believes that every post is meant for her personally. And she comments on a lot of them that I wouldn't normally comment on. Uh, but it also does decrease her sense of isolation. So there are not all bad things associated with social media. It can increase connections and, um, and you know, make you feel more connected to things outside yourself. So in some ways, it's not all bad. Um, we just have to be uh, cautious and uh, encourage literacy in that, in that area. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Thanks, learning, learning a ton talking to you. I mean, I know that I, even myself, you know, I gravitate to, I don't know, looking at information that I'm already comfortable with. You know, I think it's easier that way. I try to challenge myself and look at other points of view just because, I, I don't know, I think it's important, but I, I, I can see that it's, it's certainly easier to just go to somewhere that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know what I'm going to hear. This is what I think. This is why I want to hear it. Um, and you can find that everywhere on social media these days. It just reinforces exactly what you're thinking. Yeah, and there's some uh, some evidence coming out on the in in the area of radicalization that uh, that this is how radicalization occurs. It takes away, you know, it villainizes particular groups of people, and and uh, because you don't ever then have any contact with anybody from that group, either personally because of our isolation due to, to you know the pandemic for two years, or even via um, our social media, because all those folks are being, um, you know, all their posts are being filtered out due to the algorithms, because we're only listening to the type of posts that are villainizing that group of people. So um, we have to be very cautious about, um, and, and skeptical about why am I seeing this in my social media feed? Um, and is it the truth? How do we get that message out without sounding like we are also, anytime you try, it sounds like try to broaden somebody's horizon, they think you're just disagreeing with them or you're just on the other side and they should just see it your way. Well, that's a good question, Rick. Um, I don't have a good answer for that, um, but I can say that, you know, particularly with children and youth, limiting exposure to media it's gonna be way healthier for them than to um, allow them to pick and choose everything that they see and are exposed to. So as adults, we have a responsibility 
of ensuring that uh, children and youth are not fed a steady diet of you know, media. I and mean, even if it's a well-intentioned media, uh, there's just things that we just need to limit exposure to. So they have time to, 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 to grow and um, have those experiences that enrich their life without being told what it's supposed to mean. Um, and I, I think it's probably sound advice for adults as well. Um, we tend to have our nose down on our phone or our computers, and it's uh, probably healthy for all of us to limit our media exposure a bit as well so that we can, um, when we do go into the digital world, that we are uh, not overexposing ourselves to things that may or may not be true or may or may not be helpful. That's great advice. I know as a parent of kids who are in those teenage years, it is very frightening for me to think that they're on social media because I'm also on social media and know what's on there. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's hard to find something that's completely impartial that somebody doesn't think has an agenda or doesn't have some kind of a post that says that they have an agenda. And so um, even the best intentioned, like a university or something that, you know, or, or like even the CDC has been villainized, right? And, and really what that is, is trying to protect public health. But in the, in the end, they're seen as having an agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you go back lots, you know, before social, before the era of social media, there have always been commercials. Their goal has been to sell you things and to get you to believe certain ways. And so, so it's not new, uh, it's just a different format. And, uh, you know, we have to be, uh, have a healthy skepticism of things that we see and do and be able to teach that to, to our youngsters. Um, on the flip side, we also, there's also some good information out there that can be very helpful. So it's uh, really, uh, again, I think it goes back to digital literacy um, and to ensuring that um, there are there are ways that you can get help if you need it, that we that we uh, leverage all these different ways to get people connected. Um, at the same time, ensuring that um, that our exposure and the children's exposure is not such that it's going to damage damage their personal development and, and personal mental health. Yeah. Awesome advice. Yeah. Very much. What is, um, what is the focus of your research currently? Well, you know, I have a lot of things happening right now. Um, uh, I'm working uh, with Dr. Mario Scalora quite a bit on uh, threat assessment and extremism and uh, uh, working with the department of education uh, on some work with schools uh, and the new reporting system, Safe to Help Nebraska, which is a, um, an anonymous reporting system. If you have, see someone who has concerning behavior, whether it's related to suicide, a mental health problem, or signs that they may be considering violence, targeted violence. So um, that's a, a big area that we're working in right now. Um, violence risk assessment is part of that. Uh, we're working with uh, UNO, on a couple of projects related to um, evaluating some uh, programs for um, 
decreasing the risk of folks becoming uh, vulnerable to extremism. So there's a lot of things happening. We're also working very interestingly with uh, the state as they're beginning to roll out um, 988, which is going to be the number that is, that is um, instead of calling 911 for a mental health crisis, you'd call 988. <laughs> and that, be, that goes live in mid-July, kind of a soft opening. And it will, uh, by 2023, replace the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, and so that will be a gateway to assistance. Uh, and if you have a mental health crisis or substance use crisis, uh, at the same time, the state is developing uh, policies and procedures to ensure that mobile crisis response is available in every area of Nebraska. Now, this is happening all over the nation. So every state is getting ready for the rollout of 988 and, in, and enhancing their mental health crisis systems. So that's a, a pretty big, a pretty big thing, pretty big yeah, project. That's outstanding. Yeah. And so on yeah. the, I assume on the receiving end of that, will be somebody that'll be trained in yes. mental health emergencies and crisis de-escalation and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. Every state has uh, crisis centers, crisis lines that are now associated with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. In Nebraska, that line is answered by uh, crisis counselors up through Boys Town. Mm -hmm. And um, they are trained in uh, suicide and violence risk assessment, and they're able to um, also then uh, connect with 911 if needed and to connect with mobile crisis in, uh, the, throughout the state for Nebraska. And again, there's, uh, this is happening in every state, uh, the planning uh, for the rollout. And I believe uh, mid-July mid is the rollout of 988. That'll be a lot easier to remember. I wouldn't even know how to get a hold of the other hotline. Yeah, it's it's harder to remember an eight hundred number. Yeah. Um, so they will roll it roll it out so that it will also be uh, available uh, via text and chat, uh, as well as uh, you know through an app and um, uh, and through just dialing nine eight eight. So it's, it's very coming, very coming good up. initiative. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's awesome. So yeah, I know so, we are, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Do you have any questions for us? Sure. From both of you, what do you think the biggest uh, mental health related challenges for members of your workforce? You want me to go first? Go ahead. You get, you get this one first. You gave me the last <laughs> one first. Okay. Um, I think that I guess for me, and I've seen this in a lot of colleagues that I've worked with through throughout the years, um, it's imposter syndrome and trying to be able to, you know, deal with everything that's going on and just accept that things are really happening, I guess. Um, that's something I really struggle with on a daily basis. So yeah. Interesting. And that's what I was going to say directly amongst my colleagues is, is exactly that. Um, trying to, I mean, think that you're able and worthy to do these things is, uh, you know, everybody that I work with is very trained, very skilled, but the, that moment of self-doubt um, or something comes in. Um, 
Also, I think the, and not so much directly with me, with the physicians in my group, but just in working in a hospital setting, I do, I mean, you do see the, the stress and, and the concern with burnout and understaffing. Um, people have been picking up extra work and extra shifts and, and for so long and time away from their family and loved ones. I think it just takes a toll. And I think there's the impression, I think, sometimes when you see a healthcare provider, you don't see them as a human on the other end as well that has the same concerns and the same life situations that every other human has. Um, and so I think that's, if there's one thing that comes good from the pandemic is it's that, you know, healthcare providers are people too, and that they need to take care of themselves as well as take care of others. And you made that point earlier, and I think that's critical. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that it's, um, I think we sometimes have high expectations of ourselves and uh, that some of them may not be realistic. Um, and, uh, you know, if we feel like an imposter, really, it's time to take a step back and just take a, take a moment to um, reflect on what we are comfortable and confident in doing. And, um, ensuring that we, you know, do the best we can with what we've got. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with getting, getting some help on either side. Um, I uh, applaud both of you for having this podcast and for having the courage to talk about mental health and talk about stress. Uh, it's something everybody experiences. And all of us can benefit from um, just a little restorative time and a little restorative uh, activity uh, to, to get us ready to do, do our job the next day, to get up the next morning and do it again. And I want to thank you and uh, all of your listeners for taking time to just take a moment to think of yourself and the self-care and uh, how, how to feel better. I think that's great advice. And I will tell everybody out there when we were trying to schedule this podcast, um, I had thrown some dates out and Dr. Bowling emailed me back and said, no, this is not going to work for me because I, I have scheduled time off that I'm not working. So, you know, being able to lay some of those boundaries out and feeling like it's okay to say no, I think is really important as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not, it's not easy to do though, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. But if you don't take care of you, who's going to really? Exactly. But you're driven yeah. and you're, you're career focused. And uh, especially, I mean, I think you get to a certain point, then you're more comfortable with it. But when you're really trying to establish yourself, it's hard to say no. Uh, really hard to say to no, I can't do that project when you know deep down, there's no way in heck you can add another thing to your plate, but you feel like you're going to get left out if you don't do that project. You're going to get left behind. I'm going to miss that promotion. I'm going to miss, you know, something. It's so hard. Yeah. Fear of missing out. And, uh, you know, it's a long life and there are a lot of opportunities. And so I think you have to weigh how successful will you be if you burn out? Um, and if you miss out on this one thing, will uh, that come around again? And uh, in the context of uh, your entire lifespan, is this and your family and what's important to you, 
you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it is more important to take a moment or two for yourself. So it's a struggle. It's not easy. And uh, it takes some 